Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox and I'm the Compliance Evangelist. I'd like to welcome you to Everything Compliance, Episode 23, the new FCPA Policy Enforcement Edition, Part 2. In this Part 2 of a two-part series, the Top Compliance Roundtable Podcast Gang is back with a review of the new Department of Justice's FCPA Corporate Enforcement Policy, which was announced in November of 2017. In Episode or Part 1 of this edition, Mike Volkoff and Matt Kelly discussed some of their views on the policy, the new policy. Today we have Jay Rosen, who considers the <coughs> compliance program additions found in the Timely and Appropriate Remediation and FCPA Matters section. He highlights the new parts of the evaluation of the corporate compliance program, the root cause analysis, and <coughs> the parts from the new, from the rather the 2016 FCPA pilot program, part three on remediation. He asks, what does this information mean for the compliance practitioner? And he explores, from an assessment perspective, what would a monitor look like now more closely or even differently under the 10 hallmarks. Jonathan Armstrong takes a look at the new policy from the UK-EU angle. He explores the following issues under the policy. One, where a national blocking statute prevents disclosure of information, what does the policy require? Two, does the requirement for appropriate retention of business records and prohibiting the improper destruction or deletion of business records conflict with the right to be forgotten in the EU and the UK? He also considers the difficulties that EU or UK company might face when dealing with U.S. authorities or other relevant (coughs) authorities if they agree to self-disclose. For instance, can they meet the extensive cooperation requirement in turning over information on persons and making them available for interview. Finally, and I must say in a most fascinating extrapolation, he explores whether the imposition of law could actually negatively impact international anti-corruption enforcement. I hope you listened to part one of this very interesting two-part edition of Everything Compliance. I know you will find episode two equally enlightening. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and we are back for another episode of Everything Compliance with four of the top commentators in compliance. We have Mike Volkoff, CEO of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong from Quarterly Compliance in London, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors. Today, we're going to take an extended look at the new FCPA Corporate Enforcement Policy. We're going to slice it, dice it, and dissect it. Everybody's been uh, reading about it, thinking about it, and these four commentators have been writing about it. So I thought it would be a great time for us all to get together to talk about what is probably the most significant FCPA uh, issue in 2017. So Jay Rosen, you have worked in the compliance space for several years now, and you have worked primarily in helping companies uh who are either under investigation, uh, need remediation, or in some other form that helps them improve their, investigate and improve their compliance program. So with that sort of background in mind, uh, I'd ask you to really walk us through the part of the uh, new corporate enforcement policy, which is entitled Timely and Appropriate Remediation in FCPA Matters, because it talks about some of the uh, things that the Department of Justice thinks are important 
around a best practices compliance program. And uh, what new information is in there for the compliance practitioner? Um, we talked about a root cause analysis a little bit, and but I was wondering, is there anything new or different from your perspective than we saw in the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program or any of the other formulations that you've worked with around a best practices compliance program? Thanks, Tom. Uh, and since we're at the beginning of a second part of our year in wrap-up, I just wanted to quickly summarize the uh, new FCPA corporate enforcement policy and um, the, the chief differences now about what has been put into the U.S. Attorney's Guide. Number one, a company will receive credit for voluntary self-disclosure, full cooperation, and timely and appropriate remediation. And they're starting off that uh, they will recommend um, declination and they will recommend a 50% reduction off the low end of the U.S. sentencing guidelines. Uh, if you come in non-voluntarily but you still end up disclosing, you can get up to a 25% reduction. So um, as Rod Rosenstein said, uh, this gives a little bit more transparency transparency and a little bit more assurity as to what the business community can uh, expect going forward under the uh, new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Uh, as you said, my colleague Mike Volkoff in the previous hour uh, took a look at the new enforcement policy and what it means from a DOJ and a prosecutorial perspective. And Matt Kelly explored how the DOJ might prosecute a case where a company doesn't meet all the FCPA criteria, as well as how vigorously will prosecutors evaluate a company's compliance program as part of its investigation. Um, I'm going to spend a few minutes taking a little bit of a deeper dive into the root cause section. And then, as you said, I'm going to compare and contrast the new language in the FCPA corporate enforcement policy uh, under the implementation of an effective compliance and ethics program. And specifically, we're going to see how this tracks to the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, which dates back from November 2010, a resource guide to the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which we commonly refer to as the guidance. So um, if we look under Section C, Timely and Appropriate Remediation in FCPA Matters, the first condition includes demonstration of a thorough analysis of causes underlying conduct, which is a root uh, cause analysis, and where appropriate specific remediation to address the co uh, root causes. Uh, the language around the root cause analysis was uh, first articulated in the evaluation, and um, our colleague Bill Steinman, who wrote in the FCPA blog, said, of all the changes in the new policy, this is perhaps his favorite. As any ethics professional worth his or her salt will tell you, perhaps the most fundamental part of recovering from a lapse in an appropriate conduct is figuring out how it happened in the first place. You can't really move forward toward trying to fix something unless you've diagnosed the problem and you've clearly answered questions like, why did this happen? What about our company? and what made people think this was okay. Um, Mike Volkov also wrote in a recent blog and said, the root cause analysis has taken on greater significance through the years, and this is an important inquiry needed to understand why financial and compliance controls were not able to detect 
and prevent illegal conduct. It is a more intensive review and analysis than a risk compliance program assessment and is targeted to specific facts underlying the violations. So um, by having the first point speak to the root cause analysis, this new corporate enforcement policy emphasizes not only the importance of the specific exercise, but also the data-driven approach to best practices compliance programs. It's more than simple learning from your mistakes, but it's taking the information from your root cause analysis and incorporating it back into your compliance program. A compliance program is dynamic and not static. In the next section, the corporate enforcement policy lists eight sub-bullet points underneath a bullet point which says, implementation of an effective compliance and ethics program, the criteria for which will be periodically updated and which may vary based on the size and resources of the organization, but may include the company's culture, the resources the company has dedicated to compliance, the quality and experience of personnel, the authority and independence of the compliance function, the effectiveness of the company's risk assessment, the compensation and promotion of the port personnel involved in compliance, the auditing of the compliance program, and finally, the reporting structure of any compliance personnel employed or contracted by the company. I then performed an exercise of taking these eight sub-bullets and mapping them back to the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program. So number one under the 10 hallmarks was commitment from senior management and a clearly articulated policy against corruption. And as we all say that it starts with the tone at the top, but more than simply talking the talk, company leadership must walk the walk. This is addressed in the company's culture of compliance, including awareness among employees that any criminal conduct, including the conduct underlying the investigation, will not be tolerated. The second point is the code of conduct, compliance policies and procedures, and we all know that the code of conduct has long been seen as the foundation of a company's overall compliance program, and the guidance acknowledged that as a fact. This is addressed under the new program by implementation of an effective compliance and ethics program, the criteria for which will be periodically updated and which may vary based on the size and resources of the organization. Point three is oversight, autonomy, and resources, and this tracks to the authority and independence of the compliance function and the availability of compliance expertise to the board. The resources the company has dedicated to compliance also refers to this point. In terms of a risk assessment, we've already discussed that, and the policy maps there where we talk about the effectiveness of the company's risk assessment and the manner in which the company's compliance program has been tailored on that assessment. Point five is training and continuing advice. For this point, the new policy addresses it from the auditing perspective and suggests that the auditing of the compliance program to assure its effectiveness is necessary. On point six, incentives, disciplinary measures. The incentives are covered under the compensation and promotion with the following. The compensation and promotion of personnel involved in compliance in view of their role, responsibility, performance, and other appropriate factors. In terms of third-party due diligence and payment, 
the guidance focuses on the ongoing problem area of third parties. And the guidance says that companies must engage in a risk-based due diligence to understand the qualifications and associations of its third-party partners. As commentators such as yourself, Tom, have continually pushed the concept of embedding ethics and compliance controls within the business processes, third-party due diligence and payments are no longer specifically called out as this has now become an expectation of doing compliance. And it maps to the point that says, the quality and experience of personnel involved in compliance such that they can understand and identify transactions activities that pose a risk. Um, in terms of confidential reporting and internal investigations, I had to stretch a little bit to accommodate this under internal investigations, but feel that it is most best covered under the self-reporting as a necessary condition to receive a declination and discount. Under nine, continuous improvement of periodic testing and review. The ninth hallmark is easy to map to the auditing of the compliance program to assure its effectiveness. And number 10, mergers and acquisition and pre-acquisition due diligence and post-acquisition integration. Alas, even with all my stretching, I can't find a point in the new program which maps specifically to this. So we have managed to identify where nine out of the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, which have been memorialized in this new document, have been included. We can trace the continuity, clarification, and refinement of the DOJ and SEC's ethics and compliance expectations, which first commenced with individual opinion releases. They were then further refined in November 2010 by a resource guide to the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and this became the basis for the FCPA pilot program. It morphed into a list of relevant questions with Wei Chen's evaluation of corporate compliance programs and finally has been incorporated into the U.S. Attorney's Manual as the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. So here we are at the end of 2017, and we have this new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. So what does this mean for the compliance practitioner? And from an assessment perspective, what would a monitor look at now more closely or even differently than under the 10 hallmarks? For the compliance practitioner, ignorance is no longer an excuse. If you are doing business globally, you know what the questions, and hopefully you will have most of the answers that are going to be on the test. And if you're conducting international business, especially in high-risk areas, then the odds are you will run into a situation like this. You may still do the calculus and decide you don't want to report to the DOJ or the SEC, but with the standing offer of a declination on the table in exchange for your cooperation, I would suggest that your team give this option the consideration it deserves. Now, from a monitoring and assessment perspective, my take on this program is a need to start with the root cause analysis as your entree point in trying to figure out what went wrong or in a more positive situation, what went right. Where did your controls fail? What caused them to fail? And what will you do to strengthen those controls going forward? This initial analysis will give you a starting point to design a bespoke internal controls roadmap to determine where a company is succeeding, as well as what areas need to be shored up. Next, these controls need to be synced up with your company's code of conduct and policies 
and procedures into a continuous feedback loop. A company and its business are not static enterprises. The economy changes and the forces and this forces a company to react, to enter new territory, to create new product lines, and to sometimes unfortunately reduce the domestic workforce and bring on additional resources overseas. All of these potential systems uh, situations will affect your business. And if you have not designed a feedback loop which allows you to test your controls and ensure a global understanding of your policies and procedures, then you will not be able to take advantage of programs such as the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. So, Jay, one of the things you said really struck me, which was uh, what went right. And that's not a question that I hear a lot of compliance practitioners asking, but it sounds like uh, what you see in the new uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy really gives you the opportunity to do a root cause analysis in not only a proactive way, but determining what you have in place and how you can actually improve upon it even when you don't have a failure. Would that be a fair characterization? Yeah, I, I, I always try to be a, a glasses half full kind of guy. And, um, you know, in, in the other section when Matt was talking and, you know, wondering about, well, you know, what happens if somebody who's not as serious as uh, Rod Rosenstein is not there? What's going to happen? And I would suggest we turn the clock back a year ago when the pilot program first started and there was skepticism as to whether that would work and whether people would, you know, come in and, and self-report. And then flash forward to earlier this spring when we had had one year in on the pilot program. And now we are at a point where it's been uh, memorialized into the U.S. sentencing guidelines. So I think that um, I am hopeful that this option exists. Um, it's still not going to deal with the big cases, with the Vimplecoms, with the Tilia, but for small case infractions or for situations where uh, a company needs some help to get back on the right roadmap, I think this is um, a perfect policy, and I'm hopeful for it as we go forward with Matt's caveats about you know who leadership is going to be at the DOJ and the SEC and how they hope to enforce it. Jonathan, you've now had the opportunity to hear uh, some of our other commentators and take a look at the new FCPA enforcement policy. And I really wanted to, to ask you to consider some of the points uh, that we've talked about and perhaps some other ones from the non-U.S. perspective. And there were two I uh, wanted to throw out to you, and I think you may have come up with some, some other ones, but specifically where a company claims that disclosure of overseas documents is prohibited due to data privacy blocking statutes or other reasons related to foreign law, the company bears the burden of establishing that prohibition. And that was laid out in uh, the new guidance. And so mm -hmm. I wanted uh, to have you maybe give us some thoughts on how a company might be able to show that. And then number two, the thing um, that was definitely new was – about retention of business records and prohibiting the, quote, improper, end quote, destruction and deletion of business records, uh, does that uh, conflict anyway with the right to be forgotten or is the right to be forgotten not have anything to do with business records? And then uh, as a final point, 
how would you help or suggest to a UK or EU client to think through the decision to self-disclose or not, uh, given the different uh, enforcement environments in the EU and the UK, and certainly given the different uh, data privacy and data protection environments? Yeah, I think they're all really interesting issues, Tom, from my point of view. Uh, I always feel, uh, I think, a little bit aged when I look at these type of issues. I think uh, I, I just um, uh, pulled an article that I'd written in 2008, uh, believe it or not, on, on these issues and what the French, I think, brilliantly called Le Fishing Expedition and their, um, and their worries about uh, the U.S. authorities reaching into France in this case to get data for prosecutions in in the U.S. And, and we've known about these sort of tensions uh, for ages. In January 2008, the French data privacy authorities uh, announced an investigation. It was set up under a um, uh, court of custom uh, judge, uh, Bernard Perret, back in uh, 2008, and he called it um, uh, a substantial challenge linked to both an economic war and a war between legal cultures. And it was this, uh, this it, it, uh, heartfelt thought, I think, that France should regulate French corporations and the U.S. should regulate U.S. corporations and, and never the twain should meet. And, and, um, and that was then followed by um, a French-led a WP29 um, study, WP29, for those who don't know, uh, Working Party 29 is a, a body or a pan-European body of data privacy regulators who meet to try and agree common policy. Now, uh, back in the day, uh, it, there was a French president of uh, Article 29 at the same time as the French data privacy regulator launched its investigation. And that ended up with this uh, authority from, um, uh, opinion from WP29 that was saying uh, that um, e-discovery and overreaching investigations uh, conflicted with European data privacy law. And of course, that's led to all sorts of things. I think it has genuinely led to more of an understanding from U.S. prosecutors and U.S. regulators that they have to be conscious of data protection issues. And obviously, there's been a, a American Bar Association uh, guidance to judges in areas like e-discovery. So I think that the uh, that, that there has been something of an understanding of the challenges of balancing investigations versus uh, privacy risks, but my my worry is that this um, takes us slightly backwards. I think it seems to me that um, th th that there are uh, challenges, and I think those challenges uh, remain, despite the fact that that you would think that Europe has got almost more pro investigation since. And and, and what I mean by that is obviously. Under the UK Bribery Act, we've had some substantial investigations, Rolls-Royce being one, for example. And also, we now have French law, Saponda, which in many respects is similar to FCPA. And so, I think we have more of an understanding that investigations 
result in the sweating of large amounts of data, and that could include data on citizens of other countries. But I think those challenges still remain. Um, as, as we've talked about on podcasts earlier, if I'm a... Um, if I'm a corporation and I want to go to the government and do a deal, then almost certainly I'm going to have to hand over a lot of data which might result in the authorities taking uh, uh, taking proceedings against some of my employees or former employees. For example, in the Rolls-Royce case, uh, more, uh, the email accounts of more than 100 current or former employees were handed over to the SFO. We can assume, because it was a joint investigation, that the U.S. authorities have seen some of that data already. And I think that is challenging. And it's also a challenge for prosecutors, because, of course, to bring a prosecution against the individuals involved on this side of the Atlantic, they're going to have worries about the, you know, the fact that that evidence was obtained properly. And I'm guessing, although, Tom, you're the, the expert in this, that you'd also want to be able to prove fairness if the intention is, a, is to have a, a jury trial. Certainly on this side of the Atlantic, juries tend to sometimes try and level the playing field. So if they think that a um, defendant in a criminal trial has been duped or evidence has been unfairly obtained to use against him, then sometimes they might ignore the, um, you know, ignore the facts re relating to the offence and, and, and acquit defendants who might otherwise have been found guilty. And I just wonder if it's a dangerous road for the prosecution almost to rely on the corporation to ensure that evidence has been bagged and tagged correctly and that data privacy laws have been taken into account. Now, of course, corporations can waive their uh, privilege. They can waive uh, their rights in connection with the data, but they can't really waive rights on behalf of employees and that's where i think this um, this paper becomes more challenging you know it says for example uh, the company bears the burden of establishing the prohibition so the company bears the obligation to prove that um, the data privacy uh, or other reasons relating to foreign law are an issue but that strictly isn't correct under EU law. Under EU law, if the data is going to be handled to the US authorities and the US authorities are going to exercise control over that data, i.e. they're not going to check back in with the corporation before they, they use it, then, then the US authority themselves, so let's say it's the US uh, uh, attorney. The US attorney also becomes a data controller under EU law. So they can't say the burden of proof is on the company. The burden of proof is on them if they're a data controller and the uh, EU data protection authorities ask them how they're handling the data. And it's clear, I think, under GDPR, you'll remember this wide-ranging uh, new uh, data privacy statute that comes in in May 2018, it's clear that in those circumstances, a foreign authority would be a uh, 
potentially under the scope of EU data protection law, Article 3 of GDPR says that the uh, GDPR reaches to people who are not established in the EU, like, for example, a US prosecutor, uh, if they monitor the behaviour of data uh, subjects in the EU. And that would clearly be the case if they're investigating their, their criminal conduct. So I think there are all sorts of issues. I don't think the WP29 have changed their position too much. They've issued what, what I think is a fantastic word. They've issued what's called a non-paper, N-O-N minus sign P-A-P-E-R, a non-paper. I don't know what a non-paper is. It looks like a paper, but apparently it's a non-paper. <laughs> even as late as the end of November, uh, in another area, uh, e-evidence, saying that uh, uh, mutual legal assistance treaties are the preferred route rather than you know, uh, forcing people to voluntarily hand over data. So I don't think the European data privacy authorities have changed their mind much since back in 2008. And I think it's a dangerous, you know, as I said, that it, there was emotive language back in 2008, an economic war, a war between legal cultures, and 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 I worry that the uh, that 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 this paper almost um, pours oil on the fire when when there was a period of of harmony increasing. I think. So uh, now let me turn to this uh, really interesting, uh, I guess you would say, comment in the um, new FCPA enforcement policy because it was uh, uh, put into the. Um, uh, notes rather around uh, uh, cooperating during a uh, investigation, and it literally reads um, that uh, appropriate retention of business records and prohibition of improper destruction and deletion of business records, including prohibiting employees from using software that generates but does not appropriately retain business records or communications. Uh, and here in the United States, we've seen this utilized most recently uh, by Uber and a super secret uh, business unit of Uber uh, that was engaged in uh, some uh, nefarious business conduct. But I found it really interesting that the department uh, felt the need to actually put that into uh, into this new policy. And when I read that, Jonathan, Jonathan I immediately thought of, of many of the uh, times you visited with us about uh, the right to be forgotten and how that is utilized in the EU and in the United Kingdom. And I wondered, uh, is the right to be forgotten in conflict with this or is somehow our business records uh, uh, here in the United States, they, they would be the property of the of the company, but uh, there may be different views in uh, EU and the United Kingdom. And how how would you see this issue? Yeah, I think this is um, I think this is an interesting development, and I think the authorities generally have been concerned about people. Um, deleting data and also using methods of communication that are ephemeral rather than permanent. So in the uh, Rolls-Royce investigation, for example, uh, some of the participants moved to BlackBerry Messenger, presumably to try and avoid detection. We've seen some of the LIBOR cases that had um, uh, instant messages, for example, and we know that uh, the UK government at least has a theory that there's bad behaviour over um, 
uh, tools like WhatsApp, for example, which has an element of encryption as well. So I wonder if this does cause a rethink for many corporations in terms of what they uh, allow and don't allow. And I think it also does bring challenges with GDPR. You'll remember that um, one of the uh, key principles of GDPR is that you don't keep data for longer than is necessary. And necessary is likely to be determined by uh, domestic law in the country where the data is processed rather than necessarily a foreign legal obligation. So again, there might be challenges for corporations here, and they're going to have to do some hard thinking really in terms of uh, how long they keep data for and whether they regard a US legal requirement as enough to uh, justify the retention of data beyond its normal shelf life. And then, as you rightly say, overlaid on top of that, there are various uh, additional rights that exist. An individual can exercise the right to be forgotten, also known as the right to erasure, and say, forget me. Uh, an individual could withdraw consent, and that's not common but becoming more common uh, with individuals who are being investigated for bad behavior, that they just say, I, I no longer consent to you holding my data. And it's also uh, possible that they can serve a notice to restrict processing of their data. And we've just had a relatively interesting case on that in the UK recently involving, of all things, caravan tow bars. Um, so uh, it is an area that I think is going to be increasingly litigated. And what you tend to find is particularly individuals who are based in Europe who have indulged in bad behavior, I think they're getting better at looking at uh, EU data privacy rights as a way of uh, almost evading the inevitable or delaying the inevitable. And in some respects, the, um, the odds are stacked in their favor because under current law, the suspicion of a criminal offense counts as what's called sensitive personal data. So you have to take extra care with it. And under GDPR, that would be data uh, covered by Article 10 of GDPR, which says that effectively data relating to criminal convictions and offences has to be treated, I'm oversimplifying, as if it was uh, special categories of data. So there's um, all sorts of additional hoops that anyone trying to hold that data would have to go through. So I think it is a really challenging you know, it's a simple paragraph to add to say, of course, you have to keep appropriate business records. They mustn't be improperly destroyed or deleted. But that could cause considerable difficulties for any organization, not just an EU-based organization, but for any organization who has employees in the EU or, or customers or business agents or whatever. And I would think that's a pretty wide group. So, Jonathan, I was going to conclude the, the formal questions I had to you with uh, an inquiry into self-disclosure. But before I even get there, it seems to me, based upon your discussion on these first two points, that 
if a EU or UK company does self-disclose to United States authorities, they may be not only subjecting the company to some type of uh, legal exposure, but they might actually uh, subject uh, the individuals involved in uh, the investigation, turning over the data, uh, turning over the information, uh, those in the corporation who, who help to collect the information, if any of that violates uh, any of these e-law, uh, EU or UK uh, prescriptions, um, there could be a, a really a lot of different issues arising for the people in the investigation around data privacy and data protection. I think that's definitely right. I mean, under under GDPR, I think there are particular concerns when you're trying to do a cross-border investigation, whether you're government or not. And then under the proposed UK legislation, there are specific criminal offences that could be committed by a corporation or by directors of that corporation or managers or um or people in a in, in a supervisory uh, position, they can commit offences personally where they are consented or connived with the actions of the corporation. So I think it's a challenging situation. And for most people, whenever they're doing some sort of an investigation, they're going to need to do what's called a data protection impact assessment. So a sort of if you like, a a plan as to what they're going to do with the data, what the consequences might be for individuals and how they're going to mitigate those consequences. And in many cases, at the very least, they're going to need to go and speak to the government and help structure the investigation so that neither the corporation nor the government uh, commit uh, uh, offences under UK legislation or breach the provisions of GDPR because the penalties are substantial. You know, they, uh, if you look at Rolls-Royce, the potential penalty for data privacy breaches is of the same magnitude as the amount they paid for the bribery. So the equation becomes very different, I think, because the consequences, as you know, are up to 4% potentially of uh, global annual revenue. So for many corporations, that's a very big number indeed. And I know in uh, our visiting uh, before uh, before we started the podcast today, Jonathan, you actually had a, a even a, a more interesting angle uh, that you uh, came up with when you uh, took a look at the enforcement policy, and it was generally around the the U.S. regulators. What uh, what did you come up with uh, as at least a potential uh, area for uh, exploration? Yes, yeah, so, so it seems to me, as I said, that, um, that that with saying that the burden has shifted in this in this document, I'm not sure whether that's a correct statement of EU data protection law. If the US authorities have data and they are deciding what to do with it, so they're deciding where the investigation is going, who they're going to interview once they've got the basic documents handed over from the corporation, then that makes them, under EU data uh, privacy law, a data controller. And as a data controller, they have to obey EU data privacy law as well. And the fact that they're not in the EU is almost immaterial in this connection if some of the uh, uh, suspects in the investigation or the witnesses in the investigation are based in the EU. 
So potentially, that could mean that the U.S. authorities expose themselves to uh, regulatory action. So if, for example, uh, the French regulators feel as strongly about these issues as they did back in 2008, then we could see a scenario where the French authorities decide that they're going to investigate the U.S. authorities for the way in which they've investigated French nationals. So that we could, yeah, have this economic war that uh, Judge Perra uh, indicated uh, all those years ago. Wow, there's certainly uh, quite a bit to think about here. Um, it really shows, I think, uh, just a couple of observations. One is that uh, you have to have serious, seriously competent and expert counsel advising you on the investigative phase of this, of a multinational, worldwide uh, anti-corruption or, or indeed other investigation. And second of all, the laws in the various jurisdictions can cause difficulties uh, where things seem to be fairly straightforward, straightforward here in the United States. So uh, this is something that uh, we're probably going to ask you to watch and comment upon further uh, into 2018, Jonathan. Jonathan. So uh, thank you. Yeah, happy to. So my dog is saving us from uh, some no, no doubt murderous garbage men outside. <laughs> That's good today. Yeah. Okay, so you ready for a rant? I am, yeah. All right, give me a few seconds to know where to edit. So, Jonathan Armstrong, do you have a rant for us? Well, I'm British, so allow me to rant about the weather. We're genetically programmed to do so. <laughs> We're experiencing a particularly harsh spell of weather here, and I had a long uh, car journey yesterday. And um, we were going out a motor on one of the biggest motorways in the UK where the speed limit would normally be 70 miles an hour. But in practice, people go 80. There was snow right up the middle of each lane. And as a result, we had our um, uh, the, the flashes were on at 30. So a maximum speed limit of 30. I've never, ever seen that in all my days driving on British motorways. But I suppose there's an interesting tie into compliance because, as ever, there were people who thought they knew better. They thought the rules were unduly restrictive and that they could uh, assess uh, the risk better than the, uh, the, the, the state could by flashing 30. Uh, and um, needless to say, we passed, I would imagine, 20 such individuals stuck at the side of the road or in the snow expecting the uh, authorities then to come along and rescue them because they decided not to uh, not, not to follow the rules to start off with so i guess what i'd say is that in compliance just as in uh, blizzard conditions on uk motorways we often uh, don't stop to think that the rules might be there for a reason. So I guess my my rant would be, um, if you're going to break the rules, just step back and think about the consequences. There might be consequences not only for you, but also for others that have to come and bail you out of a hole. In a corporate environment, that's often the compliance officer 
So it's the time of year to give everybody, including compliance officers, a break. Let's be more compliant in 2018. So, uh, Mike, do you have a rant for us? Uh, I do. Uh, and my rant is um, what I would call, and I, I don't want to create a, a ruckus over this, but I'm a little bit tired of what I see a disconnect between our purveyors of ethics uh, people who I think go around and speak about ethics or people who provide uh, ethics services. Um, what, unfortunately, I see is a disconnect in a lot of the work and a lot of the expositions or explanations of what ethics are and how they inform a business community. Um, my problem with it is it's never broken down into anything practical. They're great high-minded ideas, but we need to sort of rein in the ethics uh, profession and say to them, look, these are great ideas, great things, but how do we make these truly inspirational goals and how do we inform people of these and make it uh, imperative for them to comply with these ethical guidelines and sort of challenge people to, to do better uh, in terms of their performance. Instead, what I see is sort of a lot of feel-good talk in a, in a rough time politically and socially right now that is embraced by people, applauded by people, but does it really have practical value to the business community and to compliance officers who are uh, have a tough enough job as it is? So that's my rant. Uh, I just would like to see a little less demagoguery surrounding the ethical, uh, the ideas of ethics. Jay Rosen, do you have a rant for us? Uh, I guess it was Tuesday night. I celebrated the first night of Hanukkah with my nine-year-olds, and they were very excited with the uh, uh, new additions they got for their electronic equipment and their iPads, and uh, they, they wanted to know what Daddy got for his present. And what I got for my present was uh, a miracle of light with the um, election of a Democratic senator in the uh, red state of Alabama. So I know we don't want to get too political, but uh, I think it still shows you why you play the game. And uh, I'm very uh, excited that uh, the people of Alabama were able to uh, self-determine who their senator is going to be. And in light of all the uh, harassment idea that is out in the... Uh, just in the world where we're seeing uh, the Me Too campaign, uh, I'm really heartened by the fact that uh, Doug Jones was elected in Alabama. So uh, I don't need any more Hanukkah presents for the rest of the year. So this is Tom Fox. I hope everyone has enjoyed uh, this two-part episode where we've reviewed at length the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us again. This concludes the Everything Compliance podcast for 2017. On behalf of the entire gang, I would like to thank everyone for listening. We have certainly enjoyed getting together for these uh, discussions, debates, and ongoing critique of various compliance matters. I hope you have enjoyed listening to us. If you want to reach any of the panelists, you can email Mike Volkoff at mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com, Matt Kelly at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com, Jonathan Armstrong at jonathan.armstrong at quarterycompliance.com and jay rosen at jay rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com if you have listened to this podcast on itunes i would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast 
It would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only roundtable podcast in compliance. I hope you'll join us again in 2018 for the next episode of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.